Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brenda, and I am so blessed and honored um, to be asked to share the word of God with you all this morning. Can we just give it up for the worship team? <laughs> Virtually give it up for them. Thank you so much, guys. Um, so just to give you all a heads up, I had one day to prepare this message and as of today I am eight and a half months pregnant so it really was a situation of God give me ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us today and I am very very excited to share the word God has put on our on my heart for all of us um, and the message is titled the treasure and the pearl um, if we go to Matthew chapter 13 in verses 45 to 46 Jesus tells a one-sentence parable about a man who sold all that he had. He was a merchant who found something so precious that it far surpassed even the sum of all his other treasures that he held dear. It reads, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding that one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This was one supremely precious pearl, one single pearl of exceedingly great price. So great, in fact, so precious that he sold everything for one pearl, including all his other fine pearls, just to buy this one pearl. Jesus pairs this parable with, again, another one-sentence lesson. And this one is about a treasure hidden in a field. So in verse 44, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for great joy and excitement over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. These are really simple yet profound parables. And in these two sentences, Jesus wants to emphasize the superlative worth of his kingdom, which is him and his rule and his reign. In the first parable, the hidden treasure, this is found by chance, it seems, um, without the man looking intentionally for it. And then in the surprise of it all, we see he's so shocked and happy with what he's found that in his joy, it says, he joyfully sells and gives away all that he has to buy that field. Joy flooded his heart as he stumbled on something of such value. And then in the second paragraph, it's our second parable, we have a merchant. And he's looking, he's on a search. He's looking high and low, near and far, he, because he knows the value of pearls. And in the ancient world, pearls were regarded as very precious and even in more demand than gold. And this merchant, he's not just seeking any pearl, but he wants to find the most beautiful, precious of pearls. The merchant's life likely has been bound up, searching, um, searching and pursuing these earthly objects. Now he comes across one single pearl, just one, of such beauty, of such great value. Just one pearl that is so precious, he goes and he sells all that he has to, just to have it. So here we see the fulfillment of an intentional search for something. So people come to know Jesus and his kingdom in many different ways. Some seemingly out of the blue, maybe walking on the streets of Dublin and someone on the evangelism team shares the good news of the gospel. But others, it's through a deep search, an inner search for meaning, for purpose and for ultimate truth. The emphasis in both these parables is firstly, the exceedingly precious value of what they found. That is the treasure and the pearl. And secondly, the great cost involved. In both cases, they sold 
everything they had. So it literally cost them everything. So today I want to expound on both of these points that Jesus is emphasizing in these parables. Okay, so firstly, what does it even look like when we receive Jesus as our infinitely valuable, truest treasure, our own personal pearl of great price? Before we look to the scripture to answer this, I just want to pose a question um, from John Piper. And I want us to be really honest and assess our hearts and think about how you would answer this question. And he argues that this question is the critical question, not just for our generation, but for every generation. So the question is, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? So I'd like us to look at a few beautiful moments. These are some of my favorite portions of scripture that are captured in the Gospels and the New Testament that highlights what it looks like to view Jesus as the treasure and the pearl that is worth giving all for. The first is demonstrated in Luke chapter 10 by Mary of Bethany. So in verse 38 it says, Now while they were on their way, Jesus entered a village called Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, so I want us to picture this as I'm reading. She had a sister named Mary who seated herself at the Lord's feet and was continually listening to his teaching. But Martha was very busy, distracted with all her serving responsibilities, and she approached him and said, Lord, is it of no concern to you that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me and do her part. But the Lord replied to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered and anxious about so many things, but only one thing, but only one thing, he says, is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good portion, which will never be taken away from her. Jesus says this is the one thing that is needed. Mary sat at his feet, listening to his words. Her eyes were fixed on him for he is too worthy to her for her to look away. And she captures the call for each of us to be captivated by him. And this is a pure and holy demonstration of his worth. A.W. Tozer once wrote, when the eyes of the soul looking out meet the eyes of God looking in, there heaven has begun upon the earth. And I love this because it so sweetly captures the Christian life. It's not to behave, but to behold. Not just to do works, but to know his great worth. In Revelation 2, verse 1, the risen Jesus has appeared in a really supernatural, crazy way to John. And he's giving him instructions to write seven letters to various churches in the Roman Empire, um, to the body of believers, and he has a specific word for each different church. So firstly, to the first church, Jesus says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, 
and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus commends the Ephesians for their many good works and hard work. They tested teachers to see whether they were, their professions were real. They endured hardship and persevered without growing weary. But they had lost their love and their zeal for Christ himself. And when that happened, they began to go through the motions of good works, motivated not by the love of and for Christ, but by the works themselves. What was once a love relationship cooled into a mere religion. Their passion for him became little more than cold orthodoxy. So we too um, must allow nothing, not even good works and doing good things for God to come between you and your love for Jesus. Love is always the priority with God and the real works, the fruitful works must and will flow from love. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter in the Bible says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the childish things behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So let love be your highest goal. So it's clear the gifts of God, the gifts God have given you, must never be put before him and loving him. His hand must not be sought more than his face. So we must be both workers and worshippers, and the work must come as a worship offering. Martha's faith, we see, and her relationship, it was all wrapped up in what she was doing for him. She thought she was doing good, but it's very easy to hide behind activity and busyness. Um, and activities that, if they're really just a distraction, 
they can really mask a hurting heart or an empty soul and they can really hinder our union and our intimacy with God and it can lead us to a place where we think we're actually serving him go 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 but in doing so we're actually ignoring him in the process and when this happens our eyes our hearts our motivations get completely messed up because our eyes are not on him it's important to note as well that Jesus is the one making the contrast between Mary and Martha. It's not me. It's really clear in the text. One is near him. One is not. One is looking at him and savoring him. One is not. One is listening to him and the other is not. As a result, it says Martha is anxious and worried and totally missing the moment. The Messiah is in her home. And it's not the busyness that's the issue per se. It's whether that is from a place of resting in Jesus or if it's driving in our flesh, going through the motions, covering up the issues, the inner issues we're afraid to face. And if your busyness or serving is to distract you from facing things, then there is no reward in it in heaven and it's not real fruit. We see if we look at Jesus he walked, when he walked the earth, he was busy. He had a lot of things to do. There were constantly crowds following him. My goodness, there were people literally trying to capture him and murder him. There, there must have been a lot on his mind or there, should, there could have been a lot on his mind. Um, but we see it never made its way into him and he always made time always where he went away alone and prayed to his father and he remained inwardly connected from all the crowds and stresses going on around him so that he could hear his father in the midst of everything and because we are in Christ the situation in our lives does not have to have a bearing over us or in us and of course that sounds easy to say but our circumstances should not ever have the final say on whether we have peace or joy and because we have the greater one in us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we, when we are fixed on him, that reality, the reality of who God is, is so much more magnified than anything else going on around us. And that is where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God dwells in us. It's not a place we're going to go when we die. The kingdom of God dwells in us now, which scripture says is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So like Mary, we need to fix our eyes back on him. Jesus says in these verses that this is the one thing that is needed. And like Mary, knowing Jesus should be our greatest desire. It should be our life purpose, our one thing. Have a think about what is your one thing. This is the thing in life that you really want. You could not live without this thing. This is something you dream about. It's what is on your thoughts throughout the day. And without it, you just could not be happy. That is your one thing. In Psalm 24, verse 7, we see King David's one thing. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Intimacy with God was his one thing. Knowing him deeply was his one thing. And I believe with all my heart that it's God's perfect will and desire that this also be our one thing. We were created for this to be our one thing. Every single one of us without exception were created by him and for him. 
And I love the French phrase, um, our raison d'etre, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, <laughs> uh, but raison d'etre, and it's the French phrase meaning the most important reason or purpose for someone or something's existence. And that's what Jesus is and designed to be for his followers. So achieving goals, being busy, serving the church, all that is great. That's really good. But at the end of the day, the things we fill our life up with, if they're not bearing fruit for eternity, when we die, that they're all left behind and we have eternal life. And in John 17, verse 3, Jesus actually tells us what eternal life is. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says the true meaning of eternal life is knowing God. That's incredible. That means we can start. That's now. That's for the here and now. And this kind of knowing, this word know, it's not an ordinary knowing. It's so much more than head knowledge. It's about knowing him in an intimate, deep connection, an experiential knowing, being fully known and loved and then knowing your creator and the lover of your soul in return. So clearly, intimacy with you is God's priority. I just want to say that again. Intimacy with you is God's priority. He desires your wholehearted love. And, you know, it is your love that God desires most from you. And if, if you don't believe me, it says it very clearly in Scripture because God calls it the greatest of all the commandments. The, mo the thing he desires most from you guys is your love. He desires your heart. In Matthew 20, uh, 22, verse 36 to 38, a man asks, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I just think it is so breathtaking to think that out of everything God could have chosen, all he could have asked, all that could have been the first commandment and greatest commandment, he asks for your love. And if you love him, then you will obey his commandments because this kind of love only comes from spending time with him, from um, being perceiving his presence with us abiding in him, being consciously aware of him in our day-to-day -day lives and truly abiding in him. And that abiding means to dwell, to live and walk continuously in him as he tabernacles in us. There's no place where you have to go to be with God. You abide in him and he abides in you if you are um, if you are a believer, if you're saved. But we need to perceive this reality. We need to be aware of that reality that he lives and rules in us in order to receive the benefits from his presence, which ultimately is, is him, the person of Jesus himself. In John 15 verse 1, Jesus proclaims, I am the true vine and my father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. So he, this is what happens when we abide in him. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is like a branch that is cut away and withers. Such branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire and burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, Jesus says, this is such a class verse, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Praise God. So it's only when we truly love him that we'll want to give our best for him. You know, the, the one we love, we want to, you know, do things for them. We want to please them. Uh, we want to do things according to their will. And only then will we really give God our whole heart. God is not interested in our service and what you do if there is no love, if there is no relationship with him. In Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, Jesus said these very sobering words. He said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name. To us, you know, in our natural eyes, we would look at them as they're, you mean, they're surely going into the kingdom of heaven. They're performing miracles, casting out demons. But Jesus says, he will reply, depart from me. I never knew you, you who break God's law. So as our love and intimacy with God increases, we discover that the greatest gift of God is God himself. The gifts of the spirit, oh, I pray for them, I pursue them. But the greatest gift from God is God himself because knowing him is like no other and nothing the world can offer will ever uh, compare or will ever satisfy the longings of your heart. That does not matter who you are. You were created with a soul that can only be satisfied with knowing your creator. He's the only one found worthy. And he created us in such a way, each one of us, that he is most glorified in us and in our lives when we are most satisfied in him. So his presence, his Holy Spirit in us is how then we can experience heaven on earth. Um, I read this quote, Jesus is not just the only way to heaven. He is what makes heaven worth wanting. And the great news is that heaven can begin here. We can experience Jesus right now. In Exodus 33, this is after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And God had made a promise that he would fulfill for them, that he would give them the promised land, this land overflowing with milk and honey. After all their years in captivity in Egypt, this place would be full of abundance and flourishing. And he tells Moses that he will remove every single enemy in their way. He lists all the enemy armies, every obstacle and barrier in the way of them inheriting and seizing the promise. But he says, I won't go with you, God said to Moses, because they were such a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And in the next passage, we are told that Moses, he wants to inquire of the Lord. He goes into the tent of meeting, and this is where he would meet with God. So in Exodus 33, verse 11, it says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. 
But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Just a side note, I think it's really interesting that Joshua is the one who carried the Israelites into the promised land. And it's interesting to see that Joshua remained in the presence of God even after Moses left. That's just a side note. I always find that interesting that Joshua was not quick to leave the presence of God. But anyway, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses did not want the promise without God's presence. If we don't see the blessing or the promise straight away or even at all, Is Christ and his presence enough for us? Will we be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who in Daniel 3, they were literally facing a fiery furnace. They were being murdered for their faith. And they stood looking at the king who was sentencing them to that death and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But, they say, even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They say, but even if he doesn't, and they say this when they're facing certain death, even if he doesn't, I will still serve the Lord. Even if I do not see the promise, he is still worthy. And glory to God, God did deliver them from the furnace and the Lord did go with the nation of Israel and they did enter the promised land because he who promised was and is faithful. Amen. In the next chapter of Exodus, we see then that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to speak with God and he had asked God previously in the previous chapter, he says, show me your glory, Lord. And when he came down from the mountain after he had met with God, His face was shining. It was brilliant, literally shining. It was so dazzling, in fact, that when the Israelites saw it, they were terrified. And Moses actually had to put a veil on his face. Can you imagine? And what's incredible, this is the reality. What's incredible is that now we are the body, as the body, are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. His spirit tabernacles and dwells in us. We do not have to go up a mountain. We do not have to go into the temple. We are in Christ. And this covenant, the new covenant, is greater than that of Moses. We can experience greater intimacy and greater glory than even Moses under the new covenant. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious... If that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not even steadily look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away? How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because the glory that excels. 
For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ." But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their eyes. This is speaking of the Jews. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the more, guys, the more we behold the Lord, the more we see his glory, the more we experience his glory, the more we come, become like him, turn, uh, being conformed into his image by his Holy Spirit. And when we do this, he is faithful to fill us with his spirit, to fill us with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Another key passage I wanted to go through can be found in Luke 7. Again, this is just showing the superlative worth of Jesus and what that looks like when a person values Jesus above all else. So I want you to picture this beautiful depiction in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually accounted in several Gospels. Um, but here we have our precious Jesus. He's sitting down to eat dinner and he's at the home of a man named Simon the Pharisee. Um, so this man, because we're told he's a Pharisee, he believes strictly in obeying the laws and traditions of Judaism. And he invited over some men, including Jesus, to come to his home. We know from the text that he didn't have a full revelation of Jesus as the Son of God or as even as Lord. So, but he was suspicious. He thought maybe this man could be a prophet. So it seems he was still trying to figure him out. So they're all, you can picture all these men, uh, prestigious men, I'm sure. They were all sitting down at the table. They were ready to eat. And you can just imagine suddenly all their eyes were facing Jesus filled with confusion, filled with concern, maybe disgust and shock as they watch the scene unfold at the feet of Jesus. Verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, an immoral woman, a woman who lived a sinful life. When she heard that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with perfume. Then she knelt at his feet. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a real prophet, he would have known who it is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. Then Jesus said, answering his thoughts and said to him, or yeah, then Jesus, answering his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Then Jesus told this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly cancelled both debts. Now, which of you do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus says. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, look at this woman. 
Do you see this woman kneeling here? When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, yet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, yet she has wet my er, yet from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with rare, expensive ointment. I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. This was an outrageous demonstration of love and adoration, and it was flowing from a heart filled with gratitude, transformed by the grace of God. And like this woman, we too, guys, when we grasp just how much we were in need of forgiveness, and when by God's grace we received it by faith in Jesus, it changes us forever. It should change us forever. This woman gave what was likely her greatest earthly possession to honor Jesus because he was the king of her heart. He was her truest treasure. He was her pearl of great price. And she cried tears of thanksgiving. The ointment that she poured out, it likely represented about a whole year's salary for someone who was working six days a week. Likely this was her security for her future. And yet as precious as it was, she saw Jesus as more precious. She saw him as surpassingly valuable. She literally poured her future on his feet. And in doing so, she demonstrated who it was that was supremely, supremely precious to her. And it, it stole the heart of Jesus. It warmed the heart of God. And like this woman, like this sinner, we too are all sinners deserving of the judgment of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, while we were still sinners, before we did anything right to earn God's favor, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And even as we mature in Christ, we must never forget the cross of Calvary and all Jesus accomplished for us personally, but also for humanity and the entire cosmos. Uh, this, or, this was an ordinary woman who likely never wrote a book, probably never preached a sermon, never performed a miracle. She was the one that sold the heart of Jesus. And this shows us what the gospel is supposed to do, which is to bring people to the feet of Jesus. This one ounce of adoration was worth more than all effort, all striving in the world. And it is my prayer, and I say this for myself as well, that there would be this wellspring of adoration like this woman, that it would erupt out of us as a church and change not just the way we do Sunday service, but the way we live our day-to-day -day life, the way we wash dishes, the way we change nappies, the way we drive, the way we go to work, the way we buy food at the shop. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God and in adoration to him. It's these simple things that God chooses to pick in the scriptures, not someone doing great mighty miracles. We want that as well, but you can have that adoration and receive that adoration in return from the Lord in the simple things. In this way, the public encounters you may receive during corporate worship or at a Sunday service can turn into private embraces. So we want public encounters to turn into private embraces. If you don't have that, those private embraces, it'll fade away, it won't sustain you. The public encounters will not sustain you. The reason he gives you a public encounter is to draw you to the private embrace. The sweet private presence, that's the root of our strength. That's where our power comes from. That's the root of our peace and our joy. 
What we find in him is what we need because he's the answer to whatever issues we're facing. And it's his presence, that personal presence. That's the oil that keeps our lamp burning. I, I'm missing not being with everyone here on a Sunday because we do receive power and anointing from that. But it must, the primary source must be your one-to-one, your one-to-one walk. And this is what success is in God's eyes from what I see in scripture. It's not just miracles, although we pray and have faith for them. It's not people falling over when you lay hands on them. And it certainly is not notoriety and fame or running a large church. It is a heart captivated by the love and the person of Jesus. This is why this woman was so special and highlighted in the gospels because she loved him and it was her love for him that set her apart. So this story holds a wonderful picture of what a heart of worship and intimacy with Jesus looks like for us. It's not a show, it's not bright lights, loud music or trying to impress, but it's that heart that fully seeks God and seeks to honor him. The woman with the alabaster box, she can teach us so much about love and sacrifices, sacrifice and having Jesus as the treasure and the pearl in our life. So I'd just like to ask how many of us have brought our most costly possession and given it to Jesus? What is your alabaster box? What part of your life do you need to honor God with and surrender to him? And just like the parables, this woman found something or rather someone worth every, worth giving everything for. And as the church, we too have Jesus, someone who is worth losing and giving everything for. He is that beautiful, that glorious, so much more than all the things the world can offer. As the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So because of this, we too can hold loosely to the things of the earth and let it go with gladness because he is our treasure. Um, when you understand him as king, you can understand him as king of the universe but is he the king of your heart? Scripture says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So is it really Jesus that has your heart more than your husband or your wife or your children or even more than your desire for a husband or wife or children, security, house, you name it. Does Jesus have your heart? And if he does have your heart, it is by the grace of God and we should be the most joyful and peaceful people on the planet. Um, scripture says that in his presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I often wondered, what are these pleasures forevermore? But if we think about who is seated at the right hand of God, it is Jesus and he is the pleasure forevermore. Amen. Not only that, so not only is Jesus our ultimate source of pleasure and joy and everything else that I've said, but he is also the source of real truth. We don't just follow him and surrender our hearts to him because we love him, although that's a good enough reason, but also because him, his word and his gospel is truth. The merchant searching for that priceless pearl if we remember back to the parable, they were an expert in their craft. He wanted to find the real deal. And people are crying out for the real deal. They're crying out for truth in a world of lies and deception. 
because it is only the truth with a capital T that will set you free. Ultimately, scripture describes truth as a person, God himself. Nothing is above him. He is Alpha Omega, beginning and end, the first and the last. In John 1, there's a beautiful poem. I'm sure you're all familiar with it in John's gospel. But we read, in the beginning was the word. And the word um, for word there in the Greek is logos. So in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. So this Greek term for Logos, it's translated as a capital W word, but this term is so much, even so much more than the word. Um, but it's in one sentence, it's captured three times. So in John's time, the term Logos, this carried a lot of uh, philosophical baggage. Because in the ancient Greek um, philosophers, they desired to find ultimate truth. They weren't interested in subjective truth at that time. Uh, they wanted the answer to the ultimate questions of reality. And in time, they settled on this word uh, logos to describe this ultimate reality. So at the time John was writing this, logos, that was the thing that gave meaning. The logos was the thing that gave meaning to the entire universe, the cosmos. Um, and John reveals that the Logos, it wasn't this cosmic impersonal force or this set of principles or philosophical ideas, but instead the Logos, the ultimate reality, is the person, the living person of Jesus, who was creator of all things and literally came and took on flesh and came to earth. It is Jesus Christ who is the ultimate reality. And it is Jesus alone because of that. It is him alone that gives purpose and meaning to life. John 14 verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So Jesus himself is the foundation of truth, and we must know him, it says, to be truly free in this life and the next. And again, we cannot just have mere head knowledge or know the truth in an intellectual sense. We must know him in an experiential way. The word that it says, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the same word, know, when Jesus says, eternal life is knowing the one, uh, knowing God and the son whom he sent. This is the source of the abundant life. So we take time to pursue him, to perceive his presence, um, because he is the truth, him and his gospel. So do not be the rich young ruler. And we read about him in Mark 10. And Ellen actually shared a beautiful offering message based on this just a couple of weeks ago. But in Mark 10, we see this rich young ruler, this man, he runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And a few verses later, Jesus responded, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him, it says, and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He was willing to have Jesus as a teacher, but not as his Lord, not someone that he would surrender all to and obey. And we see Jesus wasn't cold and callous with this man. He demonstrated outstanding grace. He looked at him and he loved him. So he was willing to obey, but he wasn't willing to give up his riches that he loved and depended on so much. 
and we don't know where this man is today. And you may be like this man, you may be keeping all the commandments, you may be giving faithfully every week, but, what you, but there might be something you need to let go of in order to fully be surrendered. Is it the fear of man? Maybe it's a relationship. It could be unforgiveness in your heart. You could have a grip or a love of money. It could be comfort. Dying to self is what's needed to follow Jesus and it's a painful process. Crucifying the flesh hurts, hence the word crucify. But what it produces in you is invaluable and it will last forever. And when you know Jesus like the man who found the treasure in the field, you can actually crucify the, the flesh, lay down everything with exceeding joy because you know Jesus is worth it. Zechariah 13, 9 says, I will bring them through the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Nothing is ever lost when given to Christ and his kingdom. Paul, the apostle, makes this really clear in his letter from uh, prison. As you probably know, he was the leader among the strictest sect of his religion. He had the highest pedigree, both of birth and just accolades and performance. He even provides us with a list in Philippians chapter 3. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was able to say this until that is he stumbled upon a treasure who literally confronted him, knocked him off his horse and opened his eyes up to see reality. And from then on, Paul, who was persecuting and literally putting Christians on trial um, for their faith, he was now following Jesus. And now he viewed Jesus as his one pearl of great price, of surpassing worth and value. And he counted everything else as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus. He says in Philippians 3 verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, considering it garbage. Why? So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, 20, let us not store up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves riches in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in or steal. Because in Christ we have that imperishable inheritance, praise God. So if we remember back to the original parables, they gave up everything to attain Christ and his kingdom. So just before I go on, it's important to just make it really clear what I'm saying. The ultimate price for our soul, that was paid for on the cross where the blood of Jesus was shed for you and I and salvation is a completely free gift we just receive. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, verse 8, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. But... It will cost you everything to pick up your cross and follow him. Matthew 10, 38 says, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. 
He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Because the claims of Jesus, they're radical. Yes, they're worthwhile and true. He demand, his call demands our very life. This is, not, this is not debatable in scripture. It is all over scripture. He demands that we drop everything and we follow him. And ultimately, the call to follow Jesus, Jesus himself says, is a call to die. It's a call to die to ourselves, to die to our wants and desires, to die to the things of the world. Because at the same time, it is a call to truly live. He gives us a new life, unbridled joy in him. In him we live and move and have our being. It is no longer I who lives, that is the goal, but Christ who lives in me. And this is why we are alive. This is, we were created so that yes, we would know and treasure Jesus above all and so that his life by his spirit would work through us and live through us. Jesus says, whoever will save his life, that's someone clinging tightly to their life, to the things of this world. It says, they shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. This is repeated in the gospels. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So this means we have to choose whatever comes with obedience, whatever that looks like to be obedient to God over the temporary comforts that comes with disobedience. So in order to really see what the early church saw, which I'm sure is what every single person listening desires, we need to live in a way that they did in terms of their hearts. They had lives completely surrendered to the call of Christ. And guys, we can't do this on our own. This takes the courage, takes courage of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, we see Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I, 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 I'd love to visit Israel because I, I want to see the Sea of Galilee. I always just picture Jesus walking along and he calls out to the fishermen and he says, so simply, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it says Simon, Peter and Andrew dropped their nets just like that and followed him and we we know their lives were never the same and in fact they changed the whole world forever and um, they literally changed the world it was never the same again because of their decision to drop and follow because they chose to drop their nets leave all they knew lay down their lives and follow him and um, the world changed and this call has not changed it won't look the same for every single person but if every one of us picked up the cross that, we're, that we are to carry, laid down what God has called us to lay down, then this nation, guys, would not be the same. Dublin City would be impacted like never before. Our families would be impacted like never before because in doing so, we would fulfill our destiny on this earth. This is our call as All Nations Church to come follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. God has put his spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead on the inside of you. He sent you into your workplace, into your community, your friendship group, so that out of you would flow his rivers of living water. He sent you there to birth him in that environment, to bring the kingdom of heaven wherever you go. You are the carrier of his presence and his kingdom. Our world is in desperate times. It's so filled with darkness. People are so confused and deceived. They have no idea of their purpose. We see crippling levels of loneliness, crippling levels of mental health and suicidality. 
and no social or political reform will ever change that. They will never satisfy their souls. It will never save them. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free and it's only true freedom, not the freedom the world offers. And this, the only true freedom can be found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It will not overcome it. And Ireland's only hope is Jesus. And the reality is, guys, we are his ambassadors. We are his body. We are his hands and feet on the earth. So the church of Jesus Christ, us, we are the hope of Ireland. We are the hope of the world. Jesus says, go ye into all the world and make disciples. We are salt and light to a lost and broken world. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth, live a sinless life, die a brutal death on a cross, experience the full wrath of God, the weight of every one of our sins and the sins of the world, every curse on the cross, rise up from the grave, conquering it all, even death itself, all demonic forces, the greatest victory the world has ever known, and then give us his very spirit. He did not do this so we could live nice, comfortable, mediocre lives. He sent his spirit so that we would shine in the darkness, so that his kingdom would come to earth, so that we would be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. We would push back the darkness. And he, he gave us his spirit to know him and make him known to all people for his glory and his name's sake. That is why we are alive. We have such a high calling and such a great purpose. But this comes with a cost. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So ultimately, the call to follow Jesus, as I said, is a call to die to ourselves, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us, die to the things of this world and take up the life of Christ. And at the same time, this is the real call to live and experience life to the fullest, that abundant life. Uh, John 10, 10, he came that we would have life, life to the fullest till it overflows. Somebody, you know, paid a price for you to be here. This is how Christ Christianity works. Before any of us knew Jesus, people were praying for us. People were interceding for us. People were courageous and loving enough to tell us we must repent of our sin and believe. Every one of us too must pay a price. Although yes, the gift of salvation is a free gift. You just receive what Jesus has done. He has accomplished it all for you. But following him and really living out our destiny comes with a surrendered life. And that is that has a price tag. And it looks different for each one of us. And you know, in the end, you know, it, it won't even feel like a price uh, because Jesus is so worth it. But if we look, according to Open Doors, the USA, just around the world today, we have our fellow brothers and sisters paying prices um, to the, we'll read here, it says roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered last year, more than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned, and another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. This is last year around the world. Now, in our nation, we're not likely to have to face these kinds of persecutions. Who knows? Maybe in time, there could be prison sentences. We don't, I mean, who knows? We may not have to face this kind of persecution, 
or pay such a high price. But if you are a follower of Christ, you must pay a price and you will face persecution of some form. In Timothy, it says anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution because we cannot possess all God has for us based on the price of the generation before us. We cannot rely solely on the price that Pastor John and Pastor Joanna paid. Do you think they haven't paid a price to Uh, for God to entrust this church to them. Absolutely, they have paid a price and they are still paying a price, I'm sure. So we must not, we cannot just rely on them. It has to be our personal, um, our personal price. We too must count the cost. Matthew 7 verse 13 says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only few find it. David Platt wrote, and I love this, it kind of summarizes this, what I've been saying. The cost of following Christ is great, for it costs you everything you are. But the reward of following Christ is greater, for you experience everything he is, both now and forever. A few weeks ago, Pastor John, he shared the origin of a hymn Um, the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it really spoke to me. So I'd just like to read it out for any of you who maybe missed it or just forget, or maybe you were nodding off, who knows. (laughs) Um, So this is the origin of the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. So I'm just going to read. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, many missionaries came to Northeast India to spread the gospel. Um, Into these hostile and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist missions and they were spreading the message of love, peace and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary actually succeeded in converting a man, his wife and two of his children. This man's faith proved contagious and many villagers began to accept Christianity. Angry, the village chief summoned all of the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down his two children. As both boys lay dying on the floor, the chief asked him, Will you now deny your faith? You have lost both your children. Will you lose your wife too? But the man replied, Though none go with me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said his final words. The cross before me, the world's behind me. No turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man he wondered why should this man his wife and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent some two thousand years ago there must be some remarkable power behind the family's faith and i want to taste that faith in a spontaneous confession he declared i too belong to jesus when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief the whole village accepted christ as their lord and their savior and it's an incredible story um thank you 
so for people listening, you know, if knowing and lo- knowing and loving and following God like this, it mightn't sound very appealing to you. Um, but that's because you've not yet tasted and seen. You've not even begun to understand or comprehend the love God has for you. 1 John states that we love God because he first loved us. And in Romans, we learn that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. His love for you has no beginning, no end. It is immeasurable. And if you are in Christ today, God could not love you any more than he does right now. And he proved his love for you, scripture says, by sending Jesus to die for you in your place, paying the price for your sins. 1 John 4 says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So if you make a decision today that your one thing, your pursuit, your priority will be to turn from your own ways and know God intimately, it will change the entire course of your life because you are made for such an exciting life-giving relationship with him. Don't settle for anything else. Settle for the abundant life Jesus came for you to have. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. Um, that in cha- he prays in chapter 3, verse 16 to the Ephesians. And I just want to pray this over you too. That out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or when we than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen so my prayer is that Jesus would become the treasure and the pearl in your life and just to close I want to invite all those all those listening uh to answer the call, to count the cost, to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Make it your mission to behold him and in doing so make his beauty known to all around you. And this call is to everyone. Jesus says, come. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John 7, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And to the woman at the well, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them, I will give them, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will never, or will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So if you are listening and you don't know Jesus and you wish to follow him, come what may, first you must repent. That means turning another direction, acknowledging your wrongdoings and your need for forgiveness and turning to Jesus for salvation. You must believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins and return back to the Father. Live out God's original plan for your life. If this is something you want to do, for the first time, just know that God's arms are wide open to welcome you back to him and receive you as his son or daughter. So if this is you, wherever you are, you can say this prayer out loud with me. 
Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins in my place and rose from the dead. I turn from my own ways and I ask you to be Lord of my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior from this day forth. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can experience your great love and live the life you have died and rose again for me to have. Thank you for the gift of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.